we're recording. If you want to do your countdown. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's, um, we'll go at 15, 4, 3, 2. Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. And I'm Sam Harrelson. So, um, so we're trying something new, yeah. Thomas. Um, I, part of my, I don't like making New Year's resolutions, but I make them. So as part of that, I, I wanted to um, pare down on some of the, the tech stuff I use because, I mean, you know, I have way too many screens and, and things that I use. But a lot of that's for me to help me understand how, you know, a, a user experience might work on an iPad, on an iPad compared to a big Windows desktop right. or something like that. Um, but I really didn't need a couple of things. So one of the things I decided to part ways with was my, my MacBook Pro. Um, and partially that's because I've never really been a big fan of OS X or OS X and Apple computers. Um, I mean, they're pretty and they're beautiful and they work well, but they still feel kind of like you're a rat in a cage sometimes when you're trying to do something. Um, and I've always been a big fan of things like, uh, I guess open source uh, operating environments, which makes me a complete complete nerd, and and this is never going to catch on, and uh, I don't recommend it for anyone. So uh, I have a, a great laptop that has just kind of sat dormant since I've had my MacBook for the last year. Um, so I booted that up and threw Ubuntu on it, and it's great. I love it, uh, but that meant that the way that we do this podcast had to change right. uh, in terms of the background stuff. So we're experimenting this week. So if it sounds a little different. You can thank the fine folks with neck beards uh, and all the Ubuntu nerds out there. Because uh, it's definitely not as simple as plug in your microphone and hit record. Um, but uh, we're using a, a, a kind of a cloud podcasting thing called Zencaster. And we'll talk more about this on an, another show. But uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I, I don't know how it's going to sound in the, in the return, but I, I think it's going to really work out. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, we'll talk more about that later. But uh, it's got a good, <clears throat> good idea at least behind it. I think so. So yeah, you know, changing things is good, right? I mean, this is a discussion that Sam yeah. and I have been having for. Uh, well, it's kind of an ongoing discussion, but kind of constantly reevaluating, right, to make sure that we don't get stuck in some kind of rut uh, for how we do things, the tools that we use, the you know whatever the browser that we use, though. To use Zencaster, you can't use Safari. And so he Sam sent me the link and I was like, hold right. on, got to open up Chrome, which, and I used to be exclusively on Chrome, but it was just, um, it was just killing um, the activity on my Mac. And it might, they might've, you know, updated it now so that it's better, but I kind of got settled into the Safari um, interface and have really enjoyed it. Um, syncs up really nicely with, I use Safari on my iPhone and always have, which never, I just don't, I don't think Chrome on the iPhone is really that great of a browser. Um, I try to opera and some mm. other things, but I just always use Safari on my phone and my iPad and stuff. So it syncs up with that. So that's kind of nice. Uh, so yeah, I had to, had to fire up Chrome, um, to uh, go with the Zencaster, <laughs> but it is good. I mean, I think it's good to continue to kind of reevaluate, right? Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, yeah, I just like things that work on any device wherever I am. So I do use Chrome on, on right. iPad and iOS stuff. Um, but that, that's going way. I mean, that's almost a 10 year old mindset that I've had of, I want to use things that I can get to wherever I am. And yeah, that, that makes all of my computers kind of dumb terminals <laughs> in a sense. 
and I do have to have internet connection or whatever. Um, but I'm playing with that too. And I'm, I'm like with this Ubuntu laptop, I'm trying to use their open source office alternative and uh, like the Thunderbird mail client, and all this other stuff. So we'll see how that goes. But Evernote does not play well with open source. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say that. Which is, which is, uh, so, there's no so you have client. two resolutions that are kind of butting heads, right? One of which is yeah, open it's, source. It's the other, wait, the other is um, like you're really going to give Evernote like full go this year or try to. But I can't. I mean, I, you know, I'm using this Ubuntu laptop much more, um, especially on a personal basis than than I do my like my big desktop PC because um, that's just a it's a truck. You know, it's a beast of a machine, and um, you know, it's, it's it's just frustrating because things like Skype work great on Ubuntu or uh, what else? There's something else I loaded up yesterday, and I was like, "Oh yeah, well, you know, like Steam, like the yeah. gaming thing works really well on on Ubuntu, a Dropbox, Google Drive, all those things work fine." Um, but when it comes to Evernote, they're like, "Nope, you gotta use the web thing." Or here are some great alternatives, uh, and all the kind of top end products that they suggest are terrible. So anyway, we'll talk about that later. But big news today or tonight, I guess you could well, say. But before um, we get to that, there's another thing that we reevaluated. Okay. Uh, but we came to a conclusion that we typically come to when we reevaluate this question, right? And um, that is that and culture is the worst, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you can say that. She, she's a terrible human being. I hate saying that, you know, someone who is a man of the cloth, but I, I don't find uh, a lot of redeeming things in, in much of what she says. And I, I hold out hope for her that, this is just, you know, her stick. And she doesn't really feel this way about things deep down. <laughs> she tweeted uh, shortly after Nikki, Nikki Haley's um, response to the State of the Union on what, mm -hmm. Tuesday night that uh, Trump should deport Nikki Haley. And that was, that was her whole tweet. It's down in the show notes. It, it's terrible. And, and however you feel about Nikki Haley, like really, that's that's going to be your first reaction because Nikki Haley called out Donald Trump, right. and I'm from South Carolina. Nikki Haley's been our governor here for six years, uh, well, going on six years now. She is not a rhino. She's not a, Repo a Republican in name only. She's not a a moderate by any means. Uh, she's spearheaded some very conservative, uh, you know, initiatives and legislation. She's really held back a lot of things. She's, she's kind of stood in the way of, of things based on conservative principles that, you know, most of the state would, would agree with, but I don't know. I, I thought the, the reaction in general of conservatives like Rush, well, uh, I'm using the term conservative lightly, but people like Rush Limbaugh and, and, and Coulter, the reaction they had to Nikki Haley's response was uh, just fascinating to me because I, I didn't see that coming. And I've talked to a couple of friends here in Columbia since then who are also, you know, very into politics. And that's been their reaction as well is we were watching the the response and kind of thought, okay, this is very interesting. This is a different Nikki Haley. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe you know, the the uh, events in Charleston this, this past June really did have a lasting effect on her um, because she sounded uh, very you know, kind of middle of the road, moderate, you know, let's, let's build consensus type, uh, type leader then. And, you know, then we had the, the major floods here in Columbia back in October 
and it, it really affected our communities. Um, and she kind of stood up and, and did a great job at, at heading that up and, and leading the way and getting you know, federal attention and money and that kind of thing. So I don't know, maybe she's realized, okay, well, being uh, you know, consensus builder is not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, uh, just the, the overt reaction of, of some quote conservatives that you are either all in or you're not, you know, really part of the team is, uh, it's frustrating because you see the same thing like in churches or in, in, you know, different groups or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's interesting and to see the play that out. a lot of people that are, uh, I think a lot of people are right in that we are seeing what looks like it's going to be a, a fracturing in the party. Um, I didn't really think so uh, for a long time, like with the rise of the Tea Party and everything and the Republican establishment was kind of trying to um, take control of that if they could and they weren't really able to. But then the Tea Party's their influence waned because, you know, they got voted into Congress and weren't able to get anything done because the only thing they cared about was saying you have to do exactly what I want or we're not doing anything at all. They either changed their ways or they got voted out, right? Um, and so the Tea Party influence has completely waned, and Trump has obviously kind of picked up on that strand. Um, but it's it's really interesting to see right now with what's going on, particularly the reaction to, to Nikki Haley, and by people that should know better, right? I mean, they, like like you said, I mean, there's like if you saw if all you ever saw of Nikki Haley was after Charleston and then her response, you might say like, oh, she seems like a decent moderate Republican, but you know, people that follow this know that, like you said, she's not a rhino by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I don't, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. It's, but you know, now the talk is Cruz Haley, right? And that's also, that's interesting to me. And I know you and I maybe disagree a little bit on this, but, um, I would, I would think that if the party fractures that they would not have ended up on the same side. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, the party, I mean, at least in this election, there, there will be some fracturing. I I don't, I don't think Donald Trump has come this far to walk away after he loses, you know, New Hampshire. Um, he might win Iowa. I don't know. I mean, I think Cruz is going to win that. Yeah, I think Cruz will probably win Iowa. Uh, it's close, but, uh, New Hampshire is going to be the real toss up and, if Trump doesn't win there, I could see people saying, okay, it's, you know, you've had your fun. Now it's time to go back, you know, to the, to the rock where you crawled out from and let the, the big boys do their, do their thing. Like this is a serious endeavor that these people have spent their whole lives working up to. And, you know, we don't need a Frank Underwood to come in and undercut the whole party system. You know, it's, it's Jeb's turn or it's Marco's turn, Uh, (laughs) which, it's interesting because Nikki Haley in a very similar fashion did that here in South Carolina in 2010. Right. So when she ran for governor, she was very much an underdog and she was widely, uh, sort of held up by the, the local tea party folks here and, and the, you know, kind of the, the Rush Limbaugh style conservatives. But then you have this because, you know, South Carolina is a Republican state, right? Very much so. We have, and as yeah. I recall from living at, there, at least during, um, living in Lexington, that that county is their most Republican county in the country. Is that still true? Okay. It is. Yeah. And, and yeah, our, our district, because I'm in that district, actually, uh, the, the weird gerrymandering yeah. we have. Uh, so Joe Wilson, who shouted out, you lie, you lie to <laughs> Obama. <laughs> right. 
he's my representative. And he was mine when funny. I lived there too. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. He's a great guy. I've met him a couple of times. I mean, he's, you know, very good with constituent services and he helps out with the church stuff and he loves Lexington. I'll tell you, but yeah, so we're the most conservative district in the United States. It's our great reputation. And, uh, <laughs> our little, you know, gay yeah. lesbian church, um, our, our oasis there. So, uh, um, you know, Haley kind of came in and, and really shook the boat and she was not a party player. Um, there were a number of candidates who were kind of seen as the Jeb Bush and the Marco Rubio's and maybe even the Ted Cruz's. But yeah, I, I agree. Ted Cruz is not the first candidate. I think the, the party establishment would go with, I think that would be someone like Jeb Bush, um, maybe yeah. Rubio, but Rubio's yeah, he, he jumped a little too quickly. I think if he would have waited until 2020 or 2024, uh, he would have had a much oh, easier yeah, time, absolutely. but yeah, I mean, this is Jeb's turn, right? And Jeb and Rubio from Florida. So they, what, you know, Jeb there's a lot of tension Rubio there. And then, yeah. 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 It, it's Shakespearean almost. So uh, I don't think they would uh, settle on Cruz, but Cruz is the only alternative. I think that they feel like, and I'm speaking generically when I say they about the Republican party, but I think that's the only candidate situation that they feel like can get a, um, the votes needed to kind of not split the party entirely, right. but keep a modicum of, you know, conservative, but also be able to keep their, their thumb on Cruz. And I see Haley kind of as a, a, a way to do that. So, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I think it might be a Cruz Haley ticket. Um, I think Trump's going to run his third party candidate and he'll grab 20% of uh, the election. Right. And I'd love to say Bernie would win in a landslide, but, um, so that's a, that's an interesting like Hillary. Uh, scenario, right? So if you have a Cruz Haley ticket, you have a Trump and somebody else third party ticket, and I can't even begin to guess who Trump would pick as a running mate. And then you have a, a Bernie. He'd pick a right, military so, person. So then you, it, it would be like right. Ross Perot with with so Admiral. like Sanders Warren yeah. or something like that, right? <laughs> Good Lord. right. Um, I mean, what do you do? Like, who's going to win that? Oh man, uh, it's all about okay. turnout. Okay, you so know, and, so all right, so who would be so in that scenario? Who would be the 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 running mate most likely to get Sanders elected? If you have Cruz Haley and then you have Trump as a third party, it, not right, not no, Elizabeth it Warren. It wouldn't be and Elizabeth she would not be. Would it be somebody like yeah. um, Julian Castro, Deval Patrick? Um, yeah, I would say Deval Patrick or, or I mean, Castro. I think, I think he's, he's still a little early. He's ascendant. Right? But okay, so yeah. maybe Deval Patrick, probably not Cory Booker. But that's too. No. I like Cory, but he doesn't have, not right. for that ticket. Deval is much more refined as a politician. I've met Cory a couple of times. He's an amazing guy. Um, very savvy. He will have his day. But I think he, uh, I think he waits until 2024 as well. All right. So you have Sanders. And Patrick, Bernie Sanders, Deval Patrick running against Ted Cruz, Nikki Haley, and then a Trump and somebody crazy third party. A, a white uh, right. general. I, I think that's a good guess. So that's going to be the white guy candidate. And then you're going to have, you know, Cruz, the Canadian uh, Cuban. And then you're going to have, you know, crazy old uncle Bernie with uh, an African-American uh, uh, candidate. So it's it's really cool. I mean, you know, to think about those being serious possibilities, or even if Hillary, you know, wins the right. nomination, I think she'll, I mean, I, I could still see Patrick right. being, yeah. you know, the pick. Um, but it, you look at Hillary and just 
this morning in Iowa, I was watching uh, some local news re news reports there, as you do. And on the local news, they're really talking about some things that haven't sort of bubbled up to the national level yet. But I assume will after tonight, you know, after we get through the Republican stuff going into the weekend. But Bernie is very, very close in Iowa. And he was up by nine points a month ago uh, before Christmas. And now it's a one to two point spread between Clinton and, and Bernie. And it's not that Bernie is gaining numbers. He's only gained one percentage point, but Clinton is dropping numbers. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, this election or this caucus being two right. weeks away. And and those potential voters who everyone assumed would, would go with Hillary are saying, well, it's not that we don't want to vote for Hillary or we don't really dislike Bernie, but we don't really like either one of them. So we're not going to we're not going to show up. We're not going to go. And that is killer to Hillary. You know, she's got to have big turnout. Um, and that's always been the case with the, uh, with the Democrat. And that's the one reason I don't think Bernie's going to do it is because his his machine is talking about getting Bernie on the radio in South Carolina. <laughs> right, yeah. and, and that's just, you know, it's yeah. like, what the hell? Did you not pay attention in 2008 or 2007? It's not about radio. It's not about TV. Um, and I, I think that awareness of the Hillary campaign is, is really going to go into overdrive. So now she's attacking Bernie and she's not attacking Bernie to hurt Bernie. She's attacking Bernie to get the people that otherwise would vote for her, but assume she's going to become emperor um, to turn right. up and, and to turn out for what? <laughs> so turn down for what? Sorry, I misquoted that. Yes, to do that. <laughs> yeah, a little bit easier for you to quote uh, Smashing Pumpkins, right? Like you did at the top <sighs> of the show. Despite all my rage. Um, but I mean, so I, I think it's interesting, right? Think about this. Like, if you have this possibility of, say, like, uh, Bernie Sanders, Deval Patrick versus Cruz Haley, and then a Trump third party. That's way different than the inevitable Bush Clinton race we thought we were going to get that I expected that I called for, you know, a year ago. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, the tides have changed. And on the Republican side, you have that very angry, you know, Obama was the worst president ever. And he gave us Obamacare and he, he, uh, you know, isn't strong militarily because we haven't been in a war and yeah, yeah, he called Osama and yeah, we've had all the drone strikes and been successful there, but you know, we're, we're angry and doggone it. We're going to take action. Uh, just like on the Democrat side, you've had kind of this frustration building up. Not, uh, I wouldn't say frustration, but this kind of disappointment in Obama because Obama wasn't the great, I was going to say great white hope. He wasn't, he wasn't that either. The, the, <laughs> it's terrible. He wasn't the, the great hope of, of the progressive movement that we thought he was going to be in 2007, right? And he very quickly settled into not closing down Gitmo, and he kept the drone strikes coming. And, uh, you know, we had all the stuff about the NSA spying on us and causing crazy people like Sam to get back to Ubuntu Increased because he doesn't want... And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, more deportations than any president. Um, so I, I think... On both sides, you, you've had this uh, building energy, and typically that's good for an election, and it helps that mainstream candidate because the Jeb Bush and the Hillary Clinton would have appealed to those people and said, hey, I'm going to be your man. I'm going to be your woman. I, I hear you're angry. I hear your frustration, and I'm going to channel that, and we're going to take that to Washington, and we're going to redo things, right? And that's what you hear every right. single time. And even Obama tapped into that. Uh, but this time, I think, honestly, the, the big changing aspect of all of this that that we're really not talking about is the technology behind it 
in 2007, Twitter was barely on the radar of anybody. You know, uh, I used it and I think you used it by then. Uh, but people were like, what, why would you do that? That's stupid. Now you can't, you can't watch the national, you know, college football championship without getting on the Twitter and, and arguing with people. Um, and, and, uh, tonight, you know, I'm going to be sitting there with tweet deck in front I'm of me and, and watching tonight. Exactly. And, and it becomes part of the show, right? Uh, so that participatory nature, uh, we, we saw the same thing with music, right? So music used to be this thing that artists would create and hand down to us and say, here's this album. You're going to love it. Uh, I heard your frustration. I'm Billy Corgan and I've wrote, I've written, uh, this great album and it features hits like this and this, I'm going to play them on TV and you're going to go out and you're going to buy the CD and you're going to feel that nineties angst. Uh, now albums have really broken down and music is participatory in the same way. We, it, as David Bowie says it, you know, God bless him. Uh, music flows like water now. And if you want to get the best example of that, go to a rave or, or, you know, go to something where it's not really about the music as much as the DJ and the audience. And even though they're playing house music or whatever, every experience right. is different because it's a participatory experience. Right. So technology has kind of opened that up for politics and, in a perceivable way, not necessarily in a way that people can't manipulate. Obama did a very good job of, of taking the, that early sort of social media experience and, and manipulating it in a, in a positive way for him um, or his campaign did. He had very, very smart people working on his campaign who now work at Google and Facebook <laughs> and those places. Um, and, and I think the, the, can, the candidates that understand this, the, the Trumps who, I mean, Trump exists on Twitter Right. You know, he, he's like this floating head that kind of floats into the debates and he makes a few points. But the majority of his, uh, I don't know, quotes and his experience and his policy stuff all gets played out on Twitter. And he's very participatory there. And he, he taps into that. Um, whereas Hillary has always been seen as kind of the standoffish person. She doesn't really like computers. I don't understand that stuff. I don't know how email works. Right. I just they give me a Blackberry and I type on it. Uh, so I, I honestly think, um, we're seeing the first election that's really influenced by not just websites and, and pretty logos, Obama, but Twitter, Facebook, social media, Snapchat, you know, those things that we all knew was coming. And I think finally, just like when iTunes destroyed the music industry, uh, social media has rapidly changed how we do politics and mm. we're going to see, uh, we're going to see more of that. And that's why Jeb Bush didn't win and he's not going to win. And that's why Hillary is on the ropes uh, and she's got to get her act together or it's going to cost her a lot of money. Well, but I would say in a field, I think absolutely right. But in a different Republican field, I think Jeb Bush would have won. Right. I mean, in a field where you didn't have 18 people at the outset, I think Jeb Bush actually has more than just a fighting chance to win that. Now, would he have won? I'm not sure. He still would have had Cruz. He still would have had Rubio that he was going up against. Christie probably would have performed better in a field that didn't have 18 people in it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just think that in a different field, he would have done better. Yeah. What about Rand Paul? I mean, he's got you know kicked down to the, the kids' table now. And he's not going to show up, evidently, for the debate tonight. What time is the debate? Seven? Uh, so the undercard debate undercard is at sits. six o'clock. And the main Ooh. debate is at nine o'clock. Um, so I guess, oh, yeah, I guess West Coast because it's in Charleston. It's in, right? it's yeah. in uh, North Charleston, which is was in the news, right? I mean, a year ago, um, yeah, with Walter, Walter Scott. Scott shooting there in North Charleston by the North Charleston police. I 
I would say I can't imagine them not talking about it, but actually I probably, we probably should not expect them to talk about that at all and to talk about police violence and race relations or anything like that. I think maybe it'll show up on the undercard debate. I think Santorum might pull something out because it is the holy city. You know, I mean, Charleston is, uh, you know, a, 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 a place where you can be a conservative, but also be uh, sort of, uh, you, you don't have to apologize about the social aspects of, of religion. Right. right? Um, so I, I think Santorum might try to tie it in there. Uh, Huckabee, of course, is just going to talk about killing Muslims and <laughs> Fiorina is going to talk about her wonderful business acumen. Yeah. Uh, oh, but, but I don't know. So it's Neil Cavuto yeah. from Fox and Maria Bartomero. Bartiromo. Yeah, I, I don't like Neil Cavuto. Business. Yeah. And, yeah. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, so so the undercard is Santorum, Huckabee, Fiorina. And it was supposed to be Rand Paul, but he's skipping it. Um. That I just don't like. I, I don't know. Like I'm probably going to watch it, but there's nothing interesting in that debate, right? And then, and then the main stage <laughs> debate. No more Lindsey Graham. I know, right? No more Lindsey Graham. Um. So, yeah. I mean, and Paul's made a good point. Like, I mean, he's been trying to for the past week or almost the past week, been trying to say, uh, like, you need me in the debate because I'm the only person that has, you know, a perspective other than let's just bomb them all. <clears throat> He's actually a real conservative. And that's true. Um, that like there's a he he does <laughs> I mean, bring a, a really particular voice to the to those debates that won't be there. Uh, and then the main stage you're gonna have Trump, Cruz, Rubio, Carson, Christie, Bush, and Kasich. Um, which is I don't, I don't know. I mean it's it's good that it's narrowing down, right? You're actually hopefully gonna have a little bit of a better debate. And I think what we saw in the last debate too is that when this happened. Um, Trump doesn't actually perform that well, right? Which is kind of amazing yeah, he because he actually has really poor debate performances and then like his numbers keep going up. Um, <laughs> but so that's going to be interesting yeah. to watch. So it's a Fox Business News debate. You can watch it on that channel. And apparently they've made uh, deals with satellite and cable providers to unbundle uh, Fox Business for the debates tonight. Um, it's still ridiculous. I, I think this is such a troubling thing to see first of all that the college football national championship was on espn and i mean espn is pretty ubiquitous now but right. still you know come on put that on broadcast right but, but it's espn all or they were the same company uh as disney i mean as abc because disney with abc so yeah put it on abc but I mean, yeah, yeah it's like who's going to watch a on Fox Business but... debate? I mean, I guess we're going to watch it. But and you can stream it on the website. They say no authentication will be provided. Foxbusiness.com um, and on their apps as well, they'll let you stream it. So that's good. I mean, that's kind of how it should be. But yeah. Well, and it's interesting because uh, uh, I forgot Time Magazine, I believe, on their website they did a big thing last night that that kind of came out about how Obama's State of the Union was the least watched State of the Union uh, from his presidency and one of the lowest of all time. And my response is, if you go read the article, uh, Nielsen talks about how Nielsen uh, can't monitor uh, mobile access to things like streams right. or say if you have the Sling app and you're playing it on your iPad like we did, 
uh, we just, you know, we had our iPad sitting on the, or my iPad sitting on the table there and we watched right. it by that. Um, they're not counting Roku. They're not counting any of these other, you know, appification type uh, ways to get to it. And they don't count any type of streaming. So I know there were lots and lots and lots of people watching the YouTube yeah. stream of the uh, State of the Union. Uh, so anyway, I, I which is oh, great. Like I, hate, I can't remember, uh, we're, we're in this can you remember sitting in the in the student lounge at Gardner Webb and um, like trying to find streams for a debate? Like, oh, NPR's got to have it on. No, NPR doesn't have it. And it's like, why can't we do this? This should be so simple to do. And now they're finally. I mean, how long ago was that? That was two thousand nine. You know, two thousand eight. And now yeah. they're finally. Um, coming around to doing this. But I, I think that's that's another good point to think about too is, um, and I mean, you would think that ad advertisers would be pushing this more than anybody else to say like, you need to figure this out because like our money is valuable, right? Where we spend our money is important. And if you can't tell us how many people are watching or listening, then we're going to go to somebody who can. There's a, a secret in the world of advertising that it's, it's all BS. <laughs> I mean, metrics wise, oh, yeah. you know, we, we can do some things. Um, but yeah, for, for events like this, you know, the, the Nielsen, I mean, we were a Nielsen family for a little while and it, it was silly. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. This is ridiculous. Cause I, you're paying into a system that doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, as we see ESPN shedding subscribers, uh, or traditional that subscribers is. and costing Disney money, we're going to see a lot of change here in the, in the coming years. But at the same time, I think things like this and the state of the union and those things should be on broadcast for everyone. Yes. Not to be a socialist, but come on. Right. Well, that's, but that's how it used to be too, right? I mean, now granted you had like three channels as opposed to 300, but you know, the president was on, the president yeah. was on and everybody it's, could it's, watch the president on TV. So as the old Jeff Foxworthy yeah, joke, you know, I was thinking the president's, too, on, president's on every over. channel. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so this will be, there's, so we have the caucuses coming up soon, right? I mean, February 1st, we have Iowa. February 9th, we have New Hampshire. February 20th, we have South Carolina. So there's one more debate in Iowa uh, at the end of the month in two weeks um, before the Iowa caucus. Then there's one in New Hampshire, the week of the New Hampshire caucus, right? Just a couple of days before that. And then there's one in South Carolina a week before the South Carolina caucus. Uh, and then we get into March 1st to Super Tuesday. Um, so you should, we should really see, um, a clearer picture, right. In the next month or so, I would think. Uh, you mean, sorry, I was stuck on mute. You mean, of um, like, who's going to, yeah, you know, sort yeah, of come, who's out gonna of come out with the fields actually going to look like, right. I mean, because I mean, tonight's going to be, it's tonight's going to be bloody. I think, I mean, this is, this is like the wild card game before, I mean, not to keep, to keep going right. back to football. No, but, but I think that's a good analogy. You know, yeah. this is, you know, yeah, this is the wild card weekend. And I mean, you saw what happened with the Bengals and the Steelers and then with the, the Vikings and the uh, the Seahawks. Anything like, can happen. Both of those were games. Yeah. Um, there were upsets. There was a lot of <laughs> physicality to it. And I think we're going to see the same thing tonight because I think Rubio and uh, definitely Christy and Carson and Kasich and Fiorina uh, all understand this is their last shot. And if they don't make their case tonight, they're going to, you know, be decimated in Iowa. And then that's going to turn into a tougher time in New Hampshire. And then that's it. Uh, because the donors are going to give up on you if you show up uh, in fourth or fifth place in Iowa. 
and the donors are really going to give up on you. If you were in the top three or four and you get to New Hampshire and you're still in third or fourth, you know, you've got to show some traction. You got to show some movement. Uh, otherwise you're not, you're not going to be playing in South Carolina. So I think Trump is going to be attacked left and right. And I think that's a good thing for him, uh, because it makes him the leader. Uh, but I think Cruz especially is going to be pushed and challenged. Uh, I think Rubio and, and Cruz are going to take the gloves off and, and just go at it. And, and Jeb, I mean, I think, I think Jeb knows that if he doesn't come out of this as quote, the winner, uh, it's, it's going to end badly. And he, he's got to have momentum because the one thing he's not had over these last few months is momentum. <laughs> you know, we keep right. waiting for the Jeb train to start moving. And it's, you know, it's, it's like that. It's like last night, you know, Clemson beat Duke in basketball and that's a huge upset. Um, and it, you keep waiting for these teams, you know, this part of the year in college basketball to start moving and start doing something. Uh, and, and then something like that happens and you think, well, you know, I don't think Clemson's a good team, but maybe Duke isn't just as good as we thought they were. Same thing with Jeb. Uh, so I, I think, um, you know, if he, if he doesn't win tonight, he's out. So, I mean, at some point, right. I mean, maybe in another debate, they'll maybe for another debate or two, they'll have these undercard debates, but I mean, so at now, like you have, your main stage and your undercard together are less than like the first debate that they had with like 11 people on stage. Right. Yeah. So you have 10. So, yeah. I mean, with those two together, so like they could put them all on stage together. They don't want to, we understand the RNC wants this to be uh, narrowed pretty quickly. Makes sense. I mean, it's hurting them. Honestly, it's hurting the Republican party yeah, as a whole, the longer this. So, I mean, why are they not going to the networks and saying, no undercard debate, like set your rules for your regular debate. And then that's it. And then if you don't make that debate stage, then yeah, that means you're done. Like at some point you got to pack it up. You got to realize you're not going to win this thing because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like who realistically has a chance to win the nomination. Trump does. Cruz does. Rubio, Rubio. maybe, but after Rubio, can we think of anybody that we think realistically has a chance to win the nomination now? Like, I mean, you'd no, have to have no, massive implosions for Christie or Bush to have a chance. Carson's obviously not electable. Kasich is obviously not going to go anywhere. Right. So, I mean, why are you still and, and we like to hold up these... on Huckabee Fee Arena and Santorum? <laughs> uh, because of ads. Yeah. So the networks are getting yeah. paid by these campaigns and last ditch efforts, especially before Iowa and Hampshire. And these campaigns are saying, look, you know, we as the Huckabee campaign are not going to spend our $200,000 ad buy with you, NBC or Fox or whoever, if you don't let us into the, into the debate and there's some concessions made and all of a sudden, you know, Huckabee's writing checks to, to Fox. Um, and I mean, this is always the gold mine uh, of the cycles for, for the networks and they love political campaigns because it means money. So I think once the RNC, um, gets out of this and it's so the January 28th debate in Iowa is that that's Republican yeah, yeah. right yeah uh, I think after that one we'll, we'll start to see you know kind of the, the elimination of the undercard debate but I think until then the networks are just milking this thing for the money and it's interesting that uh, 
not interesting. I think it's a it's a tragedy to see the way that the Democrat debates are being handled in uh, comparison. I, I think it's you know as bad as it is that these Republican debates are all on CNBC and uh, MSNBC Fox and business, you know, yeah. Fox Business or whatever. Uh, it, it's completely again BS that <laughs> we have the uh, Democrat debates happening on Saturday night, yeah, the Saturday before Christmas, on the same. Saturday before Christmas, the same night as the college football championship. Uh, and that was planned. I mean, that was totally planned. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I have serious issues with how that's played out uh, as we try to crown Clinton <laughs> with our nomination there. But um, so, yeah, I, I think. So what, do you, what are going to be the topics tonight? So, I mean, I would imagine it's Fox business, so it's going to be business focused, right? Um, I still expect for us to hear for calls of um, profiling Muslims. Um, I expect to hear, you know, talk about uh, our, probably some talk about what happened in Iran this week, right? Uh, with our... I was going to say that's that's going to be the big issue. Um, I think you know it's going to be an example of how Obama is feckless or whatever. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. Like maybe some immigration stuff, um, but I don't know. Like I could imagine a world where a Fox Business debate focused on business issues could actually be interesting to me personally, right? Uh, but I just. And this will be interesting for a whole host of reasons, but not for like policy reasons. Um, right. And it's, this is like that article in Vox right. uh, about the differences between Republicans and Democrats, right? And Democrats are much more concerned uh, in, in these types of forums and debates about real issues that matter to everyday people right. or whatever. And, That's yeah, and, you know, and the politics. stereotype. Right. And Republicans are much more abstract. So, if you ask, ask a Ted Cruz supporter why they support Ted Cruz, it's not, well, he's going to raise a minimum wage or he's going to, uh, you know, work on immigration reform. It's the Constitution God where the he's Constitution. a godly man. Right. Right. Which is an interesting so it's yeah, these abstract we'll put the things. Vox piece down in the show. And it's, an, it's an interesting piece. Uh, it talks about how why Republicans and Democrats are different. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, check that out. But, but I mean, that is like, you know, as a, as not a Republican uh, watching Republican debates, one of the things that it does bother me is there's no policy talk here. Um, so I guess that means that that's why I'm a Democrat, right? So I fit in well with that, that I want the, the policy talk. Um, you know, we may also hear something about Oregon. I kind of hope we do get a discussion of what's going on in Oregon and, and kind of force them to get on the national record with some of their responses to what's going on in Oregon. And that's a pretty tricky situation for, I think, Republicans, right? Uh, and and we've talked yeah. about this before. I've, I've written about what's going on out there with the with the Bundy crew, you know, taking over the uh, Malheur National Refuge, whatever uh, wildlife refuge, uh, and they're still out there. You know, two weeks going on, two weeks, a little bit longer. Um, and there's it's an it's a it puts Republicans in a bit of a tricky situation. Uh, because do you support these guys who are saying we love the Constitution and and you know their argument at least is that the federal government is taking you know they're controlling too much land out here and they're not giving us the grazing rights that we deserve and all of this, or do you kind of say like hey these guys are kind of crazy like this is not how you handle these type of disputes, um, 
you know, like also they they are threatening force to the government. Like they are, you know, you could maybe even start talking about treason at a certain point. Like where does where do they go? You know, so I, I would really like to see that discussed because I think that that we might actually get some interesting answers to a question. about that. Well, you hear. Yeah, you hear people, uh, you know, Ted Cruz talking about the rule of law uh, when it comes to things like uh, homosexual unions right. or marriages or immigration reform. And, you know, these are the laws and we have to enforce these laws. Otherwise, we are not a country of laws and things will fall apart and people will, will start having sex with dogs. You know, so we we have these laws to keep people from ha- from having sex with dogs. But those guys in Oregon are flagrantly violating the law. And, well, you know, they're white guys and they've got beards and they've got the cool, like, tactical armor. And they, uh, yeah, all of them know, carry a copy of the gear. Constitution, the same edition, right? The copy of the Constitution in their shirt pocket, if you notice in all the videos. Yeah, so you've got your Constitution on one side and the, right, and the KJV on the other. Right, so I, I think that's going to be interesting to see. Or, or you know, if, if Donald Trump keeps on with this thing about Iran and saying how, you know, this shows how impotent Obama is, and he's you know, not shying away from the sexual metaphor right. there, uh, then, you know, what about Oregon? Right. <laughs> you know, like, do, do we want to send in federal troops all David Koresh style and, and uh, take him out? Or how do you how do you handle that on your own? Territory? Yeah, when I, and I do think it's interesting there. Like, I think the government's clearly learned from Waco, right, from David Koresh. Um, maybe how not to do some things. And that was a different situation for a number of reasons. Um, yeah, sure, sure. But no, it's, it's always been my, my conjecture that, uh, in how far out or from Waco are we now 20 years? That sounds right. Yeah. In about 10, yeah, about 10 or 15 more years, we're going to start seeing Koreshians pop up Okay. and they're going to start writing letters about how David Koresh really was yeah. the Messiah. And they might even have like little guns that they wear that are gold on their necklaces. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then we're going to have someone who really kind of popularizes it and takes it mainstream. And it's like, well, he was a convicted criminal that we, uh, we executed, but you know, he, uh, he had some good things to say and then that's just going to snowball. So 2000 years from now, you know, we'll have the Koreshians. It could happen, right? (laughs) Um, It's happened once before. So I I think they've learned from Waco, but I think it also may make them a little um, maybe more hesitant than they should be, uh, you know, with situations like this. Like, yes, this is different because it's in a rural place and it's not in a, you know, it's not a federal building in, in a downtown area or something like that. Sure. But these are also kind of excuses. Right. It's, it's very obvious that there's a different, a markedly different response to white guys with military gear taking over uh, a federal building versus, you know, black people with no, you know, weapons or maybe with some bottles and some rocks uh, protesting police systematically killing them. Right. Like the responses are different in that their, their government is like, well, we don't want to like, you know, you know, escalate the situation but when it's black people we're going to bring tanks into the city because you know they can't tell us that they don't want us to keep killing them um and i i think that's that's a problem i don't know what's gonna i mean a lot of people are talking about it but it doesn't seem to be changing anything uh, well those white people aren't hurting anybody thomas and the black people are burning down their right. buildings and they're violating the laws. Well, that, and that goes so back we, to we part of what nikki in. haley said in her response right it's it seemed great and everything but she also kind of put a little jab in there um, about cities like uh, you know, Baltimore, Ferguson, et cetera, 
where she was like, well, after Charleston, it was horrible, but we didn't have uh, riots. We had hugs. And it's, you know, it's, it's definitely a slam at, I think, you know, black people that rioted because the police were killing them. Like, you know, pretty justifiable reason, I think, to get out and exercise your constitutional right to assemble to say, hey, maybe you should stop killing us. Um, but, you know, what we have had uh, here uh, that really hasn't been in the news, but it's almost every other week now, uh, big protest down at the state house about the removal of the Confederate flag. And people are still very, very upset about that. I would say butthurt. Um, and, you know, that's that's a constant thing. And I was waiting for someone to pick up on that and talk about or, you know, s- extrapolate backwards from from that um, stuff in response to, to Nikki. But but no one's really gone that way. Anyway, it's just interesting that, you know, it's the white folks who want to keep things the way they are that are doing the protesting that we kind of overlook. Right. But there you go. There you go. <clears throat> uh, people ask me often where we find a lot of our links. Um, Twitter is kind of ubiquitous as far as that goes for me. But also uh, there's a site called Memorandum, which is hard to spell and I never spell it correctly. Uh, but if you just start typing in meme and then O and then random, like the actual word, uh, you might be familiar with if you're of a certain age. Uh, that's a great sort of a collection of, of hot political topics and, and sort of culturally political topics. So I, I use that all the time to find links for this show because um, I've had a couple of people say, well, you know, how do you guys find the time to, to pull this stuff together and, and figure out what to talk about? So that's a big helper for me. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that's a, that's a good resource. But like you said, I mean, a lot of the stuff we just, you know, comes across our stream on Twitter or Facebook or something like that, or different places, you know, emails or something um, just comes across our stream. And we're like, oh, yeah, that'd be interesting to talk about on the show. Um, You know, follow, I follow a ton of people that are journalists and news organizations and things like that. Um, I find that the journalists are oftentimes better than the news organizations, because the news organizations are just uh, pushing their own content, right, which is fine. Uh, but the journalists are sharing like interesting stuff that their colleagues are writing that is not getting covered nationally as well. That's been really interesting to watch as Twitter has developed, um, you know, to see journalists sort of taking on their own persona. So, you know, you've got, you know, this guy from CNN or this guy from the New York times or this guy who, you know, started his own thing. Um, and, and they're doing, you know, broadcast type news stuff. Uh, but it, again, it allows for that, uh, I guess, dissemination of, of information without having to have the gatekeeper of the newspaper or the TV channel. Uh, but that's been really interesting to, to watch just as a, as a complete side note that has nothing to do with the rest of the show. But you know what? So does have to do with the rest of the show. Here we go. Are you ready for it? Let's do it. All right. Well, I mean, so your Koresh thing would have actually been a good segue, but listeners know by now that we're yeah, see, I thought we were going there then. Segues, and so yeah, I was trying to, I was trying I know, to give I you know, the layup. We're trying, but um, it's a swing and a miss again. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, do you, which way do you want to go? Do you want to talk about the Episcopals or do you want to talk about Jesus? <laughs> Aren't they the same? 
Um, <laughs> I did, we just mentioned the Episcopal thing. I do think this is interesting. It just happened today, uh, January 14th. The um, Episcopal Church has been suspended from Anglican Communion. So the Anglican Communion is a, a group of 44, I think, uh, churches worldwide, uh, some state churches, and then others like the Episcopal Church. Um, so they can't like vote and some other things in this communion, uh, because of their stance on same sex marriage and a few other things. Um, it's interesting because it, it makes me ask the question, like, why doesn't the Episcopal church just completely cut ties with the Anglican church? Like, what are they getting now that they, I mean, and maybe it's just in the spirit of, uh, you know, ecumenism or whatever, but, um, I don't know. Like, it's not like the Episcopal church has to me for a long time, seemed really anything like the Anglican church. I mean, I mean, other than it's like the American version, except it's not, it's completely different now than it used to be. Right. Which is, you know, it's really fascinating to, to see that, especially over the issue of, uh, of homosexuality. But um, it gets back to what, 2003 when was it New Hampshire or somewhere there was a, a Episcopal uh, bishop that was appointed. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I've got, I mean, my friends in the Episcopal church always talk about how the worldwide Anglican communion is so much more conservative uh, than, you know, our whiskey palians here in the U S. So, you know, I, would love going to the uh, Episcopal cathedral in, in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. It's built across the street from the Biltmore estate and my daughter actually, uh, both of them, uh, went to uh, preschool there. And it's just a, a beautiful, it's called All Souls Cathedral. But uh, it's also seen as a very, you know, progressive, you know, place. And it's in the middle of a progressive city. And it's just got this really unique flair to it. Um, and I imagine, you know, most Episcopal churches compared to, say, First Baptist Church or First Press are going to be a little more along that line of, of you know, kind of socially progressive and, and more open to, you know, different lifestyles or different cultures or whatever, you know, it's, it's not your come in, sit down, here's the pew, everyone around you is white, everyone around you is a banker, a lawyer, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, just stereotypically, you look at something like, you know, the Anglican communion in Africa, which is exploding, uh, and how conservative uh, we would call that, you know, compared to right. American uh, Episcopalianism or American Christianity. And uh, well, a couple of years ago, there was a, a, a mission or missionary that was sent from, forgot what country, it was Nigeria or or somewhere, uh, Guinea or something like that. They were, they were sent from there to uh, the United States <laughs> to, to try to, you know, do mission to the, uh, the wayward right. Episcopalians. So they had a church in Pauly's Island, uh, South Carolina. And uh, I don't know if it's still there or how it's doing, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's, yeah, that's, that's my question is what is the, uh, you know, American Episcopal church getting out of that relationship other than kind of the constant scorn. Right. From yeah. <laughs> the I mean, Mama so if you, if you take them out of that, they're a small denomination, like 1.8 million or something like that. But I mean, that's kind of, everything is going that way now. Every, you know, a lot of denominations, the Presbyterian church USA is going that way. They're a lot smaller now after some, you know, they're also recent same sex marriage decisions. Um, but I mean, it's not just mainline churches. It's a lot of, I mean, churches are across the board, right? We see this, we've talked about, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show. The evangelicals keep saying like, oh, it's those liberal mainline churches that are, 
you know, uh, losing members, but it's actually everybody is just across the board. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you would think at some point the Episcopal church would just say like, no, this is who we are. Like, that's cool. We don't, if you don't want us, we don't need to be there. Um, so, but I mean, you know, it's, so we had a professor in div school who used to always say, you know, five words, he'd say five words, Thomas, the Episcopal church welcomes you. So, yeah. and it is, it's on every sign and you know, every Episcopal church. I went here for a while, um, to the Episcopal church here in Tallahassee. Um, yeah. So, and it's an interesting denomination in that they are very kind of progressive liberal in that regard, but also a very liturgical, um, yeah, because you look at something like the Congregationalist, right, and the yeah. UCC, and they're also very, you know, quote, liberal, but they're on the opposite side of the spectrum when it comes to Christologies and, and right. uh, you know, theologies even. Um, you know, or, I don't know, some CBF churches are, are, you know, much more congregational or Quaker than they are Southern Baptist and in, in how they do worship. And, you know, even within the CBF here, we're seeing fractures and, and you know, different churches having different paths of, of, uh, identity. But I, I think a lot of, again, uh, it's, it's a very interesting time in the United States because we're being pulled in, you know, by, uh, things like Western Europe, which is much more progressive in, in many senses than, than we are here in the United States. And we're, we're with that rise in globalism, we're seeing, okay, Denmark looks pretty cool and they're doing these things and they're providing this for their people. Uh, maybe we should look into some of that. And then we've got kind of that conservative American streak of, no, no, we're going to do it on our own. And we don't need, uh, you know, those socialist or commies right. over in, in Western Europe showing us the way, you know, whatever. Uh, so it, we're being pushed and pulled. And, and church is really uh, kind of at the middle of that in a lot of ways, because it was seen as the center of American culture for so long. And now that's rapidly changing. So when we talk about something like communion, uh, in, in terms of like membership or covenant, um, it doesn't really mean the same as it did say a hundred or 200 years ago when you really did need to have a communion with the Anglican church because you want to have that connection back to St. Peter and Jesus. Uh, and if your church didn't have that, then, you know, you can't just go out and claim authority if you don't have, you know, that kind of, uh, apostolic authority that, that goes back to the original church. Right. Um, so I think that, you know, that's changing as well. And I think people are realizing that Christianities aren't, uh, don't come out of one story. You know, we, we right. like to read our Bible in the way that of, you know, yeah, we have the gospels and they all agree and they give us this, you know, picture of Jesus. And then Peter and, and John, uh, Peter and James take that and they do their thing in Jerusalem. And then Paul comes along and opens the doors to the Gentiles. And then it's one happy uh, never ending story until Nicaea and they kind of clarify things. And then we have a couple more of those cancels. And then we have the Protestant reformation and yeah, that really shook things up, but we still kept the apostolic nature of this right. thing. Um, we, we want to believe in the simplicity of the story and that's not necessarily the truth of, you know, whether it's how Jesus became God or how the church became the right. church. And that's hard for people. No, I think that's right. Because uh, particularly for people that, grew up in church, right? Because they hear one story and I don't think most pastors are doing them any kind of a favor. You know, I, I think this is a big problem. I've had some conversations with some other people um, recently about kind of how to like rethink seminary education. Um, and I think one of the main problems 
is that people are going to seminary, learning like good things, and then just ignoring all of it when they get into church, right? And not telling their congregation anything they've learned about the text or, you know, offering them different ways to read it. Maybe it's a different way of interpreting it. Maybe it's, um, you know, a... a, um, a feminist interpretation, or maybe it's, you know, saying, well, let's see what liberation theology would say about this, or let's see what process theology would say about that. Uh, they're not doing any of that. They're just kind of falling back into uh, what they heard growing up and just repeating the same thing. Uh, and so, you know, I think a lot of it falls on them. Um, but then, you know, a lot of it too, when you're reading the text, people read what they want to read. And this is one of the, you know, bigger challenges teaching New Testament, which I've done a lot to college students is, you know, pushing them to say, no, what does the text say? Well, the, no, 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 not, not what did you hear somebody say this says, just look at the text. Like you have it right in front of you. Just open it up. What does the actual text say? Um, and you know, that's, that's hard. Um, but then even going beyond that, what can we actually know beyond what the text says? You know, what can we know about uh, the world in which Jesus lived and, and was, I don't know, to some degree successful, right? I mean, not in the sense that he was killed by the state. So I guess he wasn't very successful in that regard, but he was in that he created this kind of worldwide movement that's still going 2000 years later, or at least some people <laughs> created it well, in he, his name afterward. All right. He yeah. contributed to it. Um, yeah. So in our Sunday school, we just finished up with Bart Ehrman's book, uh, how Jesus became God. And it was a controversial book, even in our little small you know, seemingly well, I can, church. I, can, I mean, uh, like I can't imagine there are many churches that are taking up that text, right? I mean, that that's that and that's kind of what every single one of our people said. Like, why are we reading this? Nobody else <laughs> why is reading are we, this. And that's what I said. We're we're being different. Um, and we we had uh, some new visitors this week who who came uh, because they heard we were reading that book. Uh, one person, which I thought was you know really kind of cool that you know. Because we're a small little group, and, and our Sunday school is, you know, smaller than our congregation that shows up for uh, service, of course, because it's it's Sunday school, right? But uh, even in our little group, that was the question of why are we reading this, and that wasn't necessarily kind of a, a negative tone question, but it was how can this influence what we think about Jesus and the church in twenty fifteen, and yeah, in chapters eight and nine, Arabin goes into this very topic. So I, I don't know, as we were talking about this, I, I thought about some of the, the quotes and stuff he, he has in there. Um, but, but it goes back to that wider question of, you said earlier, why aren't people talking about these things in church? And my response to that on Sunday, because someone asked like, well, okay, Sam, you know, we know you're special in terms of your, <laughs> your personal theologies. Uh, why or how is this different than something where you might you might experience in seminary, right? Like, so are are people reading this in seminary or undergrad and religion majors? And you know, my answer and, and another answer from another guy who who was also a, um, he was actually a religion professor who went to seminary and everything, and he's a older guy, um, so came through at a different time in the academy. But his response was the same as mine: is there's nothing in here that's revolutionary in terms of what you might learn in seminary. Uh, there's nothing in here in this book that's, um, you know, not already out there in terms of, of ideas you get exposed to. 
right? So Ehrman isn't remaking the history of Christianity or Ehrman isn't remaking the early Christologies of Jesus. And that's hard for some people to, to get because the immediate question is, well, why don't preachers talk about this? Or why don't ministers, you know, go into this? And my answer is job security. Right. But <laughs> I think, you know, it's different for di different circumstances. But yeah, you know, in most mainline, you know, Protestant seminaries, there's nothing in here that's shocking if you had gone to seminary. But we don't talk about it. Right. Exactly. I, I think you're absolutely right that it has to do with job security. Right. I mean, you can't you can't. <clears throat> I can't think of very many churches in this country today where you could go in and say, you know, maybe an adoptionist view is right. <laughs> you know, like maybe this is the, the way that we should understand Jesus. Like I can't, I, I can't think of very many churches today where you could go in and say that and not immediately lose your job. Like even liberal churches, <laughs> right. right? Even, you know, Episcopalian churches or PCUSA churches. I mean, you know, even some UCC churches probably. Right. So, uh, well, that's that's why I like the way Ehrman set up this book was that he didn't come in guns blazing and say, no, you've got it all wrong and this is what you should actually believe. And, you know, he starts out the book talking about his own faith journey and how, you know, he, he was very evangelical and, and fundamentalist uh, early in his life. And, you know, went to Moody Bible right. Institute and then he went to right. Wheaton, which is uh, all in the news. You know, so, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, we should talk about that. Matter. Uh, you know, so he, he waves his credentials and says, no, I, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm not here to convince you that you're wrong. I'm just laying out, you know, what's both what's in the text and what's around the text in terms of context. Um, because we lose that when we go, you know, when we get two verses of a Bible verse on Sunday morning and we hear the preacher talk about, you know, how that relates to love or, or, you know, whatever the, whatever the sermon's about, um, and, and there's not a lot of places in the American uh, sort of cultural dialogue for us to, to go into these issues. But yeah, I mean, here in chapters eight and nine, he says, he starts off the chapter and uh, he calls this, what was it? Uh, ortho paradoxes, yeah. I believe is, is the term he used. He's trying to extrapolate how we get things like Jesus is fully human and fully God and, you know, why those things are in the creeds. Uh yeah, and he, and he starts off with, in this view, Jesus was not the son of God who was sent from heaven to earth. He was the human who was exalted at the end of his earthly earthly life to become the son of God and was made then and there into a divine being. And he, you know, goes into lots of Paul and, and just how Paul and even Paul in Acts, uh, which is a different source, has kind of that theology going. You know, like, yeah, there's some pre-existent stuff going on in Paul, but Paul's also very much what you would consider kind of an adoptionist if you were to it's take him at his not word. John, right? And that's the thing is John kind of ends up winning out to some degree uh, in the Christology debate. And now I would say to some degree because John is actually, I think John has a higher Christology than actually ends up winning out, right? Because John is almost docetic in that like, here's Jesus. He's not really human. Like he's kind of above all this. Um, but people just, read it conveniently. But I think honestly, a lot of people in churches have that kind of view of Jesus. Like, well, you know, he, you know, he didn't really have to deal with the same type of things because he was Jesus. Like, so did, you know, like, yeah, even though he was human, but didn't he like really already know like everything and, you know, you get conversations like that. So I think John ends up winning out, which is kind of interesting for, you know, however you want to say it, it's the last gospel, right? The, the latest one that's in the, that's in the canon, um, right? All of the gospels were written after Paul. 
So, you know, it's this kind of really interesting way to that people conceive of Jesus. And they, they just kind of go straight to yeah. John first because I don't know, whatever. It's just, it's the one that wins, I think. Yeah, most of my conservative friends always default to John when we get into a conversation. Never about Mark, this stuff. right? Mark is um, my favorite, but never yeah. Mark. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, you know, who Jesus was kind of doing his thing until he gets baptized and all of a sudden he becomes the son of God. Wait, what? Uh, and Airman says again, the adoptionists were right to affirm that Jesus was human, but wrong to, to deny that he was God, according to the Orthodox view. The Docetists uh, were right to affirm that Jesus was divine, but wrong to deny that he was human. The Gnostics were right to affirm that Christ was both divine and human, but wrong to deny that he was a single being. So out of these things, you, you get, um, if you put all that together, you get the Orthodox affirmations that we get, like the Nicene Creed and the Apostolic Creed. Um, so that also leads to right. paradoxes that... Christ is God, but Christ is a man and he's one being. He's not two beings. Or three. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Well, that's one of the things that I like about the Airman book is that he sets it up to show that these creeds that everybody, a lot of people are familiar with the Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed, et cetera, are the, not the result of somebody sitting down and trying to figure all of this out kind of logically and philosophically, but instead it's the result of people responding to people that they think are heretics, right? So you're kind of in this arena of contestation where there are all kinds of different views about who Jesus was and what he did and what his death affected, if anything, and all of that. And then you have one guy, right? You know, the guy that we'll call the Orthodox guy, even though this is a completely ridiculous term. Um, but, you know, the Orthodox guy sitting there and he's saying, oh, you, you on my left over here, you're a heretic. So, I don't like exactly how you said it that way. So I'm going to tweak it and say it this way, but the guy on my right, he's also a heretic and I don't really like how he said it that way. So I'm going to tweak it a little bit more. And then you get the result of things that like, no, you have to believe this, but these things are completely paradoxical. Like you said, right? The idea that Jesus can be completely divine and completely human. Their, their responses to groups of people that said, Jesus is, Jesus was a great human. We should follow him. And other people who said, Jesus wasn't human. He was completely God, right? He couldn't have been human at all because if he was completely God, then like he couldn't suffer anything human and couldn't have died. He only, it only appeared like he died, et cetera. And then somebody's like, wait, I don't think I like either of those. Let's just put them both together. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think what, what seems to be the most shocking to people, you know, who, who haven't heard this before. And that's why, you know, we, we see so many history channel, uh, shows about you right. know, lost Christianities and secret Christianities and uh, those things. And, and we're, we're fascinated by the Gnostic Gospels and we're fascinated by the Nagamati stuff. And, um, you know, we, we we tend to gloss over it and we don't realize a lot of the formulation of the Christologies that we hold today were developed, you know, not just hundred, hundreds of years after Jesus. But like you said, they weren't put together by people just thinking about how those sort of Christology should look. They were put together in response to other things that people didn't consider right belief. And a lot of that was political because if you were in a town with a bishop, like, you know, Arius, if you were in Alexander during Arius's uh, time there, you could have serious economic, uh, economic impact on your own family because of something right. that your bishop was saying. Right. And uh, you know, that you, 
Right. Politics you could have a rival bishop cut off the grain trade to your city or something like that. Yeah. And, and we know that happened with Alexander and Arius and Athanasius later. Um, but yeah, and Ehrman closes out the book with this quote, which I love. Uh, the Christ of Nicaea, after the Nicene Creed, is obviously a far cry from the historical Jesus of Nazareth, an itinerant apocalyptic preacher in the backwaters of rural Galilee who offended the authorities and was unceremoniously crucified for crimes against the state. Whatever he may be or have been in real life, Jesus now had fully become God after Nicaea, which, um, you know, there's a lot in that in that uh, paragraph, but um, I, I think that's something that you have to realize if, if you're going to call yourself a Christian or not, but... <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, it informs I mean, my faith. Yeah. But I, I think it's interesting. I think the other thing that's important is that this also helps us understand not just, say, the development of Christology, um, <clears throat> but how kind of everything works, right? We can understand the political nature of it and also understand how ideas are developed, you know, not in a vacuum, right? They're developed in reaction to something else. So we have our great economic policy, but, and yeah, I mean, maybe some of it, some of it certainly is the result of somebody sitting down and thinking about, you know, how should all of this work out if I do this in a vacuum? Well, but that doesn't, you know, we don't exist in a vacuum. Um, and so it's in reaction to other things. Oh, well, this led to, you know, the housing bubble led to the Great Recession. So we've got to fix that. And then, you know, this led to the Great Depression. So we've got to make sure we don't do that. Right. So all of these things are happening in reaction to other things. So there's no kind of like pure ideas out there. Um, and I, I think that's maybe a lot easier for people to understand in other situations, but when they come to the idea of Jesus or any other religious figure, um, then they kind of just forget all of that, right? Um, they kind of forget how the world works. Um, and to me, honestly, it's much more interesting to look at this and to look at the, you know, the, the myriad ways that people were understanding, you know, who Jesus was and kind of conceiving of that. It's much more interesting than this is like sterile version that wins out. Right. Yeah. And, and I've heard so many sermons preached about how, you know, obviously Jesus was onto something because he had a message that no one else had ever had. And his message was so right. unique that it, it kicked off this movement, which, you know, there's a, sure, there's a, a kernel of, of validity there in some sense. But um, it's, I think if, if Jesus would have been president present at Nicaea, it, it would have, shocked him to see, you know, what, what people were ascribing and, and, uh, and going down the road, not, not that mainstream or modern or orthodox Christianity is necessarily wrong, but when you put all your eggs into the, you know, here's the Bible, it's the literal word of God. And all of our Christologies come out of that. Uh, when you, when you go the, down into that, that rabbit hole, I think you're, you're really playing with, uh, with reality in that regard. Yeah. But breaking news, uh, Ben Carson's campaign director just resigned. Yeah. I mean, that's telling. Yeah. Um, his, uh, was finance chairman. Um, but he had, he lost like five members of his staff like a week or two ago. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, he's going down, right? I mean, the ship's going down. Um, this might be his last night tonight. It might be. It's going to be interesting to see. Like he's well, not, I mean, I, he did raise $21 million in the fourth quarter, though, so 
He's got a little bit of money yeah. to play with. He's got a little bit to coast on, I guess. But, but it's not good when your finance guy <laughs> leaves the ship. Right. Well, and like other members of his campaign staff that resigned and endorsed Ted Cruz. Right. Like that's also not good. So. Yeah. That's called auditioning for a job. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, on that note, you want to want to put the baby to bed? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Um, thanks for listening. Um we kind of talk about whatever we want to talk about. If there are things you'd like to hear us talk about, let us know. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Thomas Whitley. You can find Sam at Sam Harrelson. And you can find more great podcasts at thinking.fm.